Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, brethren and sistren, to the Tawahado Bible Study. We are in the final chapter of the Scroll of Jacob, which is chapter 5. If you haven't been with us yet, we're talking about the book of James. Please subscribe in Apple or in Google or wherever you find this, Spotify, wherever you are, find a way to subscribe to this podcast. It's a way of keeping me honest and keeping you more honest and more consistently getting notifications of this. Repetition is important in scripture as a form of emphasis for people who do not have capitalized letters or lowercase letters, who, for people who did not have emojis, for people who did not have italics or underlining or bold, all they had available to them in a vast population, in fact, vast populations, I should make that plural, of people who are illiterate, is the ability to hear the word of God as it is read aloud or recited by an elite person from one of the few and rare scrolls. The second thing that you can do is that you can share what you learn in this podcast. If there's nothing you learn from me, hopefully you at least learn from my reading or recitation of the Holy Scriptures. And finally, if you have it in your heart, and that means not in the Western version or the Greek version of heart, but the Semitic heart in your thoughts that should transfer the words and deeds to donate, go to patreon.com slash tawahido, T-E-W-A-H-I-D-O. But you already knew that. Without further ado, let's get into it. Chapter 5 of the Scroll of Jacob. Today I'll be reading from the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. Verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and, you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have killed the righteous man. He does not resist you. Of course, in the biblical literature or biblical canon or in scripture, the archetype of the righteous man is not your average human being, but is the God-man, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And through his labor of love for us on the cross, he showed how you could love even your enemies, not through resistance. And if we want to be more like him, we have to see how he lived. In the gospel, we hear that the birds of the air have nests and that the foxes have holes. But the Ezekielian son of Adam, Ben-Adam, son of the groundling, the son of man, the mortal. These are how different versions of scripture refer to him. 
in their phraseology or their turn of phrase or their coining of phrases. Whoever that being is, that that humanity that is emphasis emphasized in the God man of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the righteous man. And if we want to be like him, we have to be careful of the danger of the riches. Here we see all these echoings from the gospel according to Matthew. We see talk of moths, which we see uh, in the gospel of Matthew chapter 6 there in the Sermon on the Mount. We see talks of treasure. Where your heart is, your treasure lies. We hear in the gospel according to Matthew. We hear that we need to place our hearts, meaning our thoughts, in the place where moth and rust do not corrupt. And here we see this great warning to the rich oppressors, which the RSV is naming this this heading. We hear of weeping and howling. This is very intense, descriptive language of things that we would be familiar with. We're familiar with weeping from mourning, whether we've been mourners ourselves or whether we've seen real, authentic, deep mourning from people in literature. Especially, I know Ethiopian communities are are very intense in their weeping is terrifying. Sometimes they beat their chest until the point of internal bleeding. You know, they starve themselves with, with fasting for 40 days. It's, it's an incredible thing to watch. And, and there are good parts of the rituals too, of course. I don't want to just highlight the bad, but, but there are some intense features here. We hear howling from wolves and from their descendants, dogs. This paints a cinematic picture of how careful we need to be to avoid the miseries that are coming upon us if we are just gathering riches and not thinking of the needy neighbor. We have all this judicial language. We hear of the evidence being stacked against us for our condemnation. Uh, That's a damning. That's very scary. And then to scare you even further into action, into conviction, into being obedient to the Lord by sharing what you have with those who have less. We hear the tetragram Yahweh with the Sabaoth together. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Exabhir Sabaoth. Yesarawit Gita. We hear about the perfect Lord of hosts and his anthropomorphized ears. How can an invisible deity, a spirit, have ears? Well, that's because he hears. Jacob, the apostle, is unequivocal. He is no holds barred. He is uh, is, uh, pulling back no punches. He is letting you know that the Lord of hosts, the one who commands all the armies of incorporeal and ethereal and invisible angels, the one who is a bad mama jamma is ready to take you out unless you share. So please, share. Sharing is caring. It is something I repeat all the time because I'm an elementary school teacher, and it is a teaching or an instruction that a kindergartner or a first grader could understand. You do not need a PhD or a master's degree to understand that sharing is caring. It's one of the fundamental principles of ethics that we teach little children, but somehow we forget when we get grown, quote unquote, or when we get 
more intelligent. When we think of ourselves as high and mighty, we begin to develop our own philosophies, our own reasonings, our own justification, our own declaration of ourselves as righteous as to why we are not giving away our riches. And a lot of people like to bring in the idea of the tithe of 10%. That's because they're trying to reduce the power of scripture. In the gospels, our Lord tells the man seeking to be perfect, who claims that he has fulfilled all the commandments, that he has to give away everything. If that is seems too extreme as you, we have the example of the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the very short tax collector, who after seeing Jesus from on top of a tree from a distance, clo gets close to him, is told he has salvation in his household. And in response to the salvation he's given freely by our Lord Jesus, he gives away not 10%, but 50% of his income. So if we want to argue, we don't have to give away everything. We're arguing with scripture. But at the very minimum, we need to give away 50%. So 50% to 100% is what we need to give away. And that's going to make us homeless. Unlike the birds of the air, unlike the foxes with holes, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to basically give away everything until we're homeless like he was. 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble, brethren, against one another, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we call those happy or blessed who were steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. There's that word again. So we have to realize the function of judge is one of Jesus's ultimate functions. It's a function we always want to take away from him because we want to stand in the place, or I should say, sit in the place of the judge. Because the scriptural judge, just like the judge in common day um, parlance in a regular court, is sitting down, is seated as a representation of his authority and as a representation of his power. We need to have patience. We need to be very, very patient because his coming is imminent and yet unknown. We don't know when he's going to come back, but he could come back at any moment, at the snap of a finger, at the twinkling of an eye or at the blink of an eye. At any moment, he could come back. And one of the gravest sins we hear early on in the Psalms, in Psalm 2, we hear of the grumbling of those who are supposed to struggle with God or contend with God, Israel. How can we grumble still? How is it possible that we're still 
grumbling against one another. We need to be careful and to dodge the judgment by listening with ears that hear. The steadfastness of Job here is mentioned. That is an invitation for you to read the 42 chapters of the scroll of Job. It's exhausting to read about, let alone to read or to hear, let alone to apply in our lives. And yet, the Lord of hosts, our judge, is calling on us to read the 42 chapters of Job. So there's your homework and there's my homework. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His mercy is here and he's asking us not to swear by things. In Ethiopian culture, as well as in American culture, we like saying, we swear by Imma Berhan, we swear by the mother of light, we swear by God, we swear by this, we swear by that. And the reason we like doing it is because we want to make sure that people understand how serious we are. In so many basketball games I played, pick up basketball, so many of my friends would be like, oh, moms, oh, God. And they would swear even when I knew they were lying because they're trying to get you to believe them in their calls of fouls or foul play in the rules of basketball. And that's just one microcosm of, of what everyone does everywhere in life. We are trying to make sure we are taken more seriously, that we are trusted. But someone is going to either place your trust in you or not. It's not your business to have compromising language. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And in the realm of Christian politeness that we might find from people who are raised culturally Christian in strong backgrounds like in Ethiopia or the Midwest or, or the South, we need to be careful. If someone asks us for money, we need to be firm and straightforward. We either need to say no or we need to say yes. If someone asks us to help them move, we can't say, uh, maybe if we change this, that. No, no. You either say yes or you say no. You're either in mutual aid or you're not. Pick a side. Scripture is always trying to get us to pick a side. Be nuanced, be contextual, but choose up. Verses 13 to the end. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders or presbyters of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth— and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him, whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul or his breath of life, is more accurate, from death. Whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his breath of life from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here, the Apostle Jacob tells us to sing praises if we're happy. And twice in the Pauline corpus, we hear the Apostle Paul tell us 
to rejoice always, to always be happy, to be happy forever. The conclusion of this logical syllogism, if I may use Greek philosophy for the glory of God, is that we must sing psalms or psalmody all the day, all the days of our life, forever. In the Ethiopian or the Gizrite tradition, we have the four books of Yared of Aksum, the Dukwa, for all seasons, the Mi'raf, for praying at night, Zimmari, for praying and singing during communion, and the, the Mawasa'it, which is which are prayers for the dead, for those who have fallen asleep with the Lord. We have the Qaddasi, which are normal Eucharistic prayer. All of these are sung, especially a cappella. The Qaddasi, the Soma a lot of these especially are sung a cappella. And it's amazing what a cappella prayers we have available for us, what tradition of singing the Psalms, which are the prayers of the Lord. And if we really understand what we're called to do and synthesizing or making one with the Apostle Paul's writings and the Apostle Jacob's writings, we will always have a psalm to sing. There are two great mysteries mentioned in this passage. The one is penance and the other is unction to the sick. The unction to the sick is when the elders or the presbyters pray over you and bring you oil. In the Greek, we always need to be reminded that the oil is tied to the mercy, which is mentioned many times in this chapter. Eleon and Eleos are not exact homophones, but they sound similar enough where you think of oil and you think of mercy. And this act was used to choose prophets, to choose kings, and to choose priests in the Older Testament. So here in the Newer Testament, we see it used for healing. Even today in our church, we use it for healing all the time. That's why people go to Jerusalem for holy oil or various monasteries in Ethiopia or in Greece for holy oil. But the important thing is not just physical healing. Note the emphasis here on the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection. Whether you're physically healed from your ailments or not, we leave to the Lord's will. But the most important thing is that the elders or presbyters come to pray over you with mercy symbolized in the oil for the forgiveness of your sins and for resurrection. In the next area, we have this discussion of confession, something that we must all do. And it says that we may be healed. And again, the context here is the forgiveness of sins. We have to confess our sins to one another. And of course, in our tradition, we typically do that with the priest as an accountability partner, as a witness or a martyr before you and before God. So we have my father's namesake, and by virtue of me being the inheritor of my father as the first son, and also because it's my last name, uh, it's my namesake too. Elijah or Elias or Elias. The Hebrew, of course, is Eliyahu. And the Hebrew is what is always important. Jeff Benner, a Hebrew scholar, has pointed out that the El here with the Aleph and the Lamed form an understanding in the older alphabets in Paleo-Hebrew and before that in Proto-Sinaitic of oxen meaning strength or a bull that means strength. It's no accident that when Moses left the Israelites, they made a golden calf or a golden bull 
It used to confuse me a lot when I was a child. I didn't understand why would they go to that. It's because that's how they imagined God, not as an old man in the sky, but the strength of a bull in the sky. And they wanted an idol of his so that they could see him. And yet God was an invisible God. And so he was offended that they would try to trap him into a statue to try to manipulate him and to control him. In any event, it has the oxen strength in the Aleph and in the Lamed, which is the, the, the E part, and the Lamed, which is the L, is the pastoral or shepherdic authority. So we have strength and pastoral authority, the strength of a bull or the strength of an ox, the strength of a yak, and the pastoral or shepherdic authority. That is Elohim. And you have Yahu, which is Yahweh, right? And so we have this distant God and the close God. We have the spirit, the breath, the non-corporeal, the other real, and the anthropomorphic who walks in the garden. Elohim is Yahweh. God is Lord. Or my God is my Lord. That is the name of Elias. And he is a prophet who aimed to have steadfastness. He aimed to be fervent. Did he have times of doubt and depression and suicidalness, suicidal ideation? Yes, but he had steadfastness as a prophet or mouthpiece of the Lord. And here we see that his fervent prayer is what led to the opening and the closing of the sky or of the heavens. So we too need to be fervent in our prayer. Finally, we have the saving of the so-called soul what I say, the breath of life. How much more poetic is it when you say, saving the breath of life from death? There you see the contrast. There you see the original meaning as the nefesh or the soul, quote unquote, the breath of life is defined in Genesis 2, 7. And you could see it in its many contexts. You could even see it in the book or the scroll of Job when you go and read those 42 chapters. So, if you help someone who's wandering by giving them road signs, by rerouting them with the GPS, by feeding them scripture, by showing them a way of life where your thoughts, words, and deeds are constantly ironed out and developed and molded and shaped by the scriptures, then you too will be able to cover a multitude of sins. You too will be able to please God by bringing back a sinner. Glory to God for all things. We have completed the scroll of Jacob.